You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about pediatric sleep-related deaths. Joining me, I have two physicians. First, Dr. Roy Hoffman, who's the medical director of the Fatality Review Program at the Philadelphia Department of Public Health and sees patients at a health department-run community health center, also known as Health Center Number 6. Welcome, Dr. Hoffman. Thank you. And next, we have Dr. Stacy Callum, who's the director of the Division of Maternal, Child, and Family Health at the Philadelphia Department of Public Health and also a pediatrician. Welcome, Dr. Callum. Thanks so much for having me. So as a disclaimer before we get started, we will be talking about infant loss, including SIDS today, and this may not be appropriate for all audiences. Let's start with some definitions to guide our discussions of sleep-related deaths. Most of us have heard of SIDS, or Sudden Infant Death Syndrome, which is the sudden death of an infant less than one year that cannot be explained after a thorough investigation, including an autopsy, examination, and a review of the clinical history. Another type of sleep-related death is accidental suffocation, which often happens in a bed and involves suffocation, overlay, smothering, wedging, or entrapment, or strangulation. There are also undetermined or unknown causes, which certainly are distressing for families, but it's sometimes impossible to know for sure. So we will be talking about these three categories, SIDS, accidental suffocation, and undetermined or unknown as sleep-related deaths. As pediatric providers, when we think about causes of infant mortality, prematurity and congenital anomalies come to mind. Fortunately, I do not recall seeing many sleep-related deaths in my practice, although the cases that I do recall are devastating. So can both of you help frame for me how common sleep-related deaths are and perhaps compare them to other causes of infant mortality just to give us some context? Sure. So first, just to ground us in definitions, infant mortality is defined as the death of an infant before his or her first birthday. And nationally, sleep-related deaths are one of the top three causes of infant mortality, as well as prematurity and congenital anomalies, which you mentioned. Here in Philly, sleep-related deaths are actually the second most common cause of infant mortality following prematurity. So just to put that in perspective, in Philadelphia in the past several years, on average, there are around 25 sleep-related deaths per year. And just to think about it, that's the equivalent of a kindergarten class full of children every single year that we've lost due to a sleep-related death. And just moreover, when we're thinking more broadly about child mortality, which is the death of a child between ages 0 to 17, so at least from our Philly data, we know that sleep-related deaths are more common causes in things like drowning, childhood death due to cancer, suicide, anaphylaxis combined. So the numbers are low, relatively speaking, but sleep-related deaths are a higher cause of child mortality. That's really unbelievable, and I didn't recognize how common it was until you mentioned that. As we talk about how common sleep-related deaths are, do you see disparities in these rates by race or ethnicity? So I can only discuss Philadelphia numbers as my unit, which is a part of the Philadelphia Department of Public Health, reviews only child and youth deaths of Philadelphia residents, regardless of where the death occurs. I've been doing this work since 2009, 
And over those 13 plus years, you know, I personally have reviewed over 400 sleep-related deaths. So speaking of the Philadelphia numbers, I could say that unfortunately there are great disparities when it comes to race and ethnicity amongst our sleep-related deaths. A disproportionate number of the Philadelphia sleep-related deaths occur in black non-Hispanic infants. White non-Hispanic and Asian non-Hispanic infants have disproportionately lower numbers of sleep-related deaths in Philadelphia compared to their number of births. Whereas the, finally, the proportion of sleep-related deaths for Hispanic infants is pretty much similar to the proportion of the Hispanic infants born in Philadelphia each year. While my overall number of Hispanic infants sleep-related deaths aren't that high to further analyze, I feel that if I had higher numbers and could look more carefully and analyze, anecdotally, I feel that of the Hispanic deaths, we have disproportionate numbers of Black Hispanic infants who die and Puerto Rican Hispanic infants who die of these sleep-related deaths in Philadelphia. So we're going to talk a little bit about how to address some of these disparities that you mentioned, because prevention of sleep-related death is a key component of counseling that pediatricians do with families starting at the time of birth and sometimes even before. We talk about the importance of the infant being alone, on their back, in a crib, and we've highlighted this since the Back to Sleep campaign, now the Safe Sleep campaign, started in 1994. So how often are the sleep-related deaths that we see in infants due to one of these factors being alone on their back or in a crib? So I'm going to try to talk based on the data that I have seen and collected over the years. There's you know, always there's anecdotal experience, but I can look also for the whole city of Philadelphia, which is a city and a county of 1.6 million people. And as Stacey Callum alluded to in the past, we currently experience an average of about 25 sleep-related infant deaths each year. Back in the early and mid-2000s, we used to experience as many as 45 per year. So we do unfortunately have a lot of data to look at in that sense. And based on a report that, a mini report that I put together in 2017, where we did an analysis of sleep-related deaths between 2011 to 15 in Philadelphia, we found that you know a very large majority of our sleep-related deaths had at least one unsafe sleep factor identified in the investigation and often multiple unsafe sleep factors. One of the most common unsafe sleep factors identified amongst our Philadelphia sleep-related deaths was an unsafe sleep location with adult bed or couch being the most common and accounting for almost three quarters of all of our deaths. Another very common unsafe sleep factor amongst our sleep-related deaths was the presence of co-sleeping, over half of them. And another common factor that we saw was the sleep position at the time of death, where just over half were found on their side or on their stomach. And one thing, though, just to keep in mind is that a lot of the investigation for sleep-related death which is carried out here in Philadelphia by a medical examiner office investigator, is limited to what the caregivers tell the investigators. There's also limits to what an autopsy can reveal. So if the investigators are talking to the parent and the parent is afraid to tell the truth about the last sleep environment for the baby, and people can be afraid for so many reasons. People don't know in Philadelphia that just because you co-slept with your baby and your baby's found dead, that child protection services are not going to take away your children, your other children. But that's, I think, a common misperception. And so 
There's a lot of fear out there when a baby dies, repercussions. And so we don't know if parents, what they're telling us is out of fear or what really happened. So you can't always tell from investigation and autopsy where the infant really was in their last sleep environment. I feel that as a pediatrician, when you ask a question, oftentimes families want to give the right answer. So like whenever I ask my families in clinic, you know, if there's smokers in the house, you know, I've never had a, in my anecdotal evidence, I've never had a parent, every parent I've ever asked that, I always said, oh, but I only smoke outside the house. Mm -hmm. And likewise, you know, we just don't know necessarily exactly where the last sleep environment was, but it is a very, very common factor in our deaths. Right. And I hear this anecdotally too, or see it in clinic where sometimes parents are afraid or embarrassed to admit that they sometimes bring their child into bed with them. Yet, as you said, from your data, we know this is still happening. And while many aren't sharing the story, some are. And the reasons that they give are compelling. Things like ease of breastfeeding, bonding, and comfort for the baby and the parents. So let's talk about these barriers and how we as pediatricians can address them. So first, while the safest sleep surface is a firm, flat mattress without any fluffy items, we also know that that isn't the most comfortable. And parents need sleep too. So what advice do you give parents in clinic about safe sleep surfaces when they say, but my baby just won't sleep in the crib and I'm exhausted? Yeah, so before going into how I speak with families, I wanted to share that our data from Philly really affirms, Dr. Lockwood, what you said about barriers to safe sleep. So at the health department, we do a survey every year called PRAMS, which is a representative sample of Philadelphians two to six months after they've given birth. And we ask a whole host of questions, including about how the baby sleeps. And the top three reasons that people report co-sleeping were comforting the baby, breastfeeding, and to help the baby sleep. And I would say anecdotally in my clinical practice, that's what I hear as well. But to your question about when talking to families about safe sleep, first and foremost, I really try to acknowledge how hard and exhausting that newborn time of parenting can be. I actually have a four-year-old and a one-year-old myself, so I'm really close to being in that phase of complete and utter exhaustion. Mm -hmm. And I understand that parents will really just want to do anything to get a few extra hours of sleep. So I think really just starting with empathy is first and foremost. And then to your specific question about the baby not sleeping in the crib, the advice I'd give families is that sleeping in a crib is a learned skill. And for some babies, they just need more practice than others, so they should keep trying. I also encourage families to think through what sources they might have for respite or support so that the caregivers can get some rest and time away from the baby, whether that's thinking through family members or even referring um, the family to a maternal and child home visiting program so a support worker can come at intervals to help. I also advise families that certain scenarios make bed sharing and co-sleeping even more dangerous. So specifically, sleeping on a sofa in particular is dangerous or a soft bed. Co-sleeping with a caregiver who had consumed alcohol or other substances is another high-risk scenario. So really, for some families, it's about trying to meet them where they are and taking a harm reduction approach to minimize these really especially dangerous scenarios. Those are great tips. And the second scenario that I hear that you mentioned as well is that a breastfeeding mom says that she and, and or the baby fall asleep and they end up sleeping next to each other in bed. So how can we help support breastfeeding moms to meet their safe sleep goals? Yes, this is a common one I've seen in my clinical practice as well. And I'll actually confess full disclosure that this happened to me once when my firstborn was an infant. But more specifically for a breastfeeding mom, I think, first of all, we want to applaud them and 
cheer them on for breastfeeding because breastfeeding itself can be really challenging. But we do know that one of the benefits is that it actually can help reduce our risk and rate of SIDS. But in general, for supporting breastfeeding moms, I think it's important to emphasize the recommendation for room sharing, but not bed sharing. Because that gets at that issue of it's two in the morning, you're breastfeeding the baby, you're so tired, and then you can just sort of put them right back next to you in the room without having to go to another room to put the baby down. I also talk with families that if they think there's a chance they might end up falling back asleep in bed with the baby, then really to put in precautions before they go to bed to make that adult bed as safe as possible. So these things aren't as comfortable for adults, but they're safer for babies. So removing all the pillows, removing fluffy blankets, extra sheets that could all smother a baby and sleeping on a really firm adult bed. I also think it's helpful to offer all breastfeeding moms connections to lactation providers who can offer tips and support so they can breastfeed as comfortably and efficiently as possible. To that end, I'm just going to make a quick plug for any listeners in Philadelphia that we have a program called Pacify, which is an app that you can download on your smartphone that provides 24-7 on-demand telelactation support. So literally like at two in the morning, you can click a button on your phone and get connected to a lactation counselor. And this is actually available for free for any Philadelphia residents if you use the enrollment code Philly. So again, the app is called Pacify. And if you live in Philly, the enrollment code is Philly. I love the Pacify app. Thanks for sharing that. So are there other risk factors for sleep-related deaths that pediatricians should consider in terms of prevention efforts and education with families? Stacey Calamardi alluded to the biggest ones, but just to reiterate also the sleep surface, placing an infant to sleep on a pillow is something I consider extremely dangerous. Prior to me starting my work with death reviews when I was just a general pediatrician and I not worked for the health department, I don't think I really ever had thought of a pillow as being such a health hazard. But overall, that comes to just the overall, my approach with sleep-related deaths And it's in my opinion as a pediatrician and a public health practitioner, I believe that 80% or perhaps more of these sleep-related deaths are actually due to an accidental suffocation with the assumption that this death occurs in a jurisdiction where proper investigation and an autopsy will have ruled out trauma or abuse or other rare but possible medical causes of death, such as like a pneumonia. My unit participates with a grant from the CDC for Sudden Death of the Young, SDY, and we are consenting families currently to donate a biospecimen that will, if agreed, will then get full genomic sequencing and go into a data specimen bank that hopefully one day, you know, researchers can uncover additional medical causes of these sleep-related deaths, such as perhaps a cardiac arrhythmia, which is something that cannot be diagnosed post-mortem. It's also my opinion that there's the diagnosis of AIDS that they put on the death certificate. And interestingly, there's an article just came out the other day talking about SIDS and the possible cause for it. And it's, I guess, maybe with my skepticism a little bit, I, I really don't know if SIDS truly exists or if it's something that's an extremely rare entity that's not causing a very tiny proportion of these sleep related deaths. Currently, since we still don't have an actual cause, I've been able to identify cause for SIDS, some places they'll call a sleep-related death a SIDS if after full investigation, they determine that the baby, the infant was placed to sleep in a totally safe sleep environment. Perhaps ultimately some of these SID deaths with also with the full genomic sequencing of these 
deaths, maybe we'll discover that some of them actually, and I believe some of them will eventually be identified as being due to a cardiac arrhythmia or seizure disorder or something else medical. The point here is that infants are dying, in my opinion, of sleep-related deaths because they are accidentally suffocating, accidentally. These deaths happen predominantly in younger infants before they have good neck and other motor strength, before they can free themselves from a person laying their heavy arm on their chest or placing them face down on a pillow. Older sleep-related deaths, like in the seven to 11 months old, we'll see when infants are able to crawl into a dangerous situation, such as being placed asleep on a bed and then they crawl head first and fall between the bed and the wall and they get stuck and these things happen. So sleep surface can be extremely important. And the other thing, again, just to reiterate what we heard before is, you know, I say like, just say no to couches and say no to placing an infant to sleep on your chest, especially on your chest as you're lying on a couch. I mean, those make great photos if you see, you know, parent with their baby on the chest, on the sofa. But anecdotally, I guess, and maybe not so anecdotally, I find those to be one of the most dangerous sleep snares you can create. And then, you know, the final thing is, you know, make sure that a pack and play and talk about the pack and play as best you can and make sure that it's being used for the baby and not used as a storage device for laundry or who knows what. Too often when, you know, we've done scene invest our investigation, done scene investigation, take pictures inside the house of these sleep-related deaths, we find out that a safe sleep environment was there in the household, but the pack and play was being used for some other purpose than putting the baby to sleep. Such a great point that there can be a lot of shame and blame for families who feel like they were doing the right thing and yet they had a child with a sleep-related death that, uh, to your point, there's just a lot that we don't know still. And there may be some intrinsic genetic factors and maybe some biomarkers down the pipeline that we can use to better identify kids at risk. So lots that we don't know. But again, to your other point, there are things that we do know are risks. And so when we can, we should try to modify those risks. Now, on that note, we know that baby supplies are expensive and not every family may have a crib for their baby. So what resources exist to help families access a safe sleep environment for their infant? So nationally, there's a wonderful program called Cribs for Kids that has sites throughout the country and they give out free pack and plays or cribettes and also safe sleep education. So you can go on the Cribs for Kids website and search by your location and find a Cribs for Kids location that's near you. And here in Philadelphia, we at the health department are actually at Cribs for Kids sites. Additionally, a lot of the maternal and infant home visiting programs also offer safe sleep education and access to cribs for their participants. So you can definitely refer your families to maternal and infant home visiting programs. And in Philadelphia, you can do that through our home visiting centralized intake system called Philly Families Can. Also, some of the Medicaid managed care organizations actually offer cribs and safe sleep education through their prenatal case management and education programs. So if you don't have a Cribs for Kids or other site near you, you can also try to contact the insurance company. And just a bit more about what we do in Philly. So at our health department from our Cribs for Kids site, we give out roughly about a thousand pack and plays to families per year, plus safe sleep education. And then right now we have a new public health campaign where in addition to the Cribs, we're giving out this evidence-based board book called Sleep Baby Safe and Snug. So it's a board book, but it actually reviews all the safe sleep information for a family, but in a really much more engaging way than giving out like a traditional brochure. And what's really blows my mind about this, because who knows about a board book that has a randomized controlled trial, but this one does. <laughs> so there's a randomized controlled trial behind Sleep Baby Safe and Snug. 
where the mothers who received this board book as compared to a safe sleep brochure were actually less likely to bed share and more likely to have exclusive crib usage than those who got the brochure. So many great resources. Thank you for sharing those with us. So as a pediatrician, I feel like families are getting a lot of education on safe sleep practices, but is this just my perception or is this what families report? Are they tired of hearing about it because it's just common knowledge now? Or do our education efforts still work at preventing sleep-related deaths? Yeah, I hear what you're saying. And on some hands, I feel that they don't want to overwhelm people with information or be too repetitive. But actually, when it comes to sleep-related deaths, in my opinion, I feel like we do need to keep on repeating the message until it gets through. And it's not uncommon for the last caregiver of an infant who died a sleep-related death is someone other than the parent themselves. Like, for example, it could be the grandmother, it could be the 12-year-old sister, or it could be a babysitter, it could be mom's boyfriend, and so forth. So I feel we do need to keep on saturating the market with this message as it's going to sometimes take a while to sink in and is somewhat contrary to certain practices over the last several decades. And the message is not always so intuitive for the layperson because so many people co-slept with their parents when they were infants and their parents co-slept with their parents and they all survived. So it seems like it's the proper way to do. And, and as we talked about before, parents are doing what they think is best for their infant. And they sometimes feel keeping them close to them is the best way to make sure they don't stop breathing in the middle of the night, you know? So I feel the reason we need to repeat it is because these deaths for the most part are preventable and they're affecting otherwise healthy infants, the beginning of their lives. And the, the, I mean, all of these deaths are tragic, but you know, infant deaths are even more tragic. And a great point about how there are many different care providers who may be supervising infant sleep. And so repeating this message with a family is important because you may catch different caregivers at different appointments and in different settings. So great points there. So we've covered so much today, and this is such an important topic. If you can just summarize everything that we talked about into maybe two or three take-home points for pediatricians, what would you say those would be? So first and foremost, just to reiterate, sleep-related deaths are one of the most common and preventable causes of death in children. Not just in infants, but in children. I compiled amongst Philadelphia children ages 17 and under to children from 2005 to 2016. Sleep-related deaths were the number two overall cause of death after prematurity and other congenital conditions. So they were more common than homicides. They were more common than child abuse. They were more common than suicides, than drug overdoses, car crashes, cancers, fires, falls, asthma, the number two cause of death. When I first realized this, again, and it's not something I ever learned in my time during my pediatric training, and not something I realized, and I've given sometimes presentations to pediatricians, and I include a slide like that because I think most people are not aware we oftentimes, I think as pediatrician, and also I'm a parent as well of three young children, you worry about anaphylaxis, you worry about meningitis, a sudden cardiac arrest, and they don't even come close to the number of sleep-related deaths we have in Philadelphia every year. So I just want that to be a take-home point. You know, as pediatricians, we do a lot of preventive care, promote health and wellness, prevent illness and death, and this is bang for your buck. You know, in some jurisdictions, especially in Philadelphia, this is the second most common cause of death. 
Point number two, I would say, is getting people to change their behavior is one of the most difficult ways for public health practitioners to attempt to reduce poor health outcomes. So keeping that in mind, this is a behavior, how a parent are going to place their infants to sleep, and we're trying to get them to change. So as a result, I personally, when I give my safe sleep message, I use more of a risk reduction approach as opposed to a judgmental approach when I'm counseling parents. So I'll ask parents where their child, where their infant sleeps and in what position. And then after they answer, I will then sum up in a non-judgmental way. I say, well, basically we know that sleeping alone in a bassinet or crib or pack and play and being placed on their back is the safest way for infants to sleep. And I use the word safest because it doesn't say that necessarily what if they're doing something else, it's dangerous, but it's definitely not as safe. If they give a correct answer, I will commend them for their practices. If they give an alternative answer, I'll leave out the judgmental tone, but I'll still deliver my safe sleep message and, and repeating that they can, you know, to make them feel comfortable being honest with me and that I'm telling them from the data that we have what we know to be the safest. Because that's oftentimes the vast, 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 vast majority of all the parents. That's what they want. They want what's safest for their kids. And I'll just add that my big take home is really to get knowledgeable about the resources that you have in your community when it comes to safe sleep. So I hope everyone goes onto the Cribs for Kids website, finds out where the distribution sites are near to them, and then also thinking about what resources sort of related to safe sleep, but not a safe sleep program that you can refer families to, to sort of reduce risks or promote protective factors. So things like smoking cessation resources, MAT programs, so both smoking and drugs are high risk um, for sleep-related deaths. Also to know about the breastfeeding resources in your community and maternal and child home visiting programs. All great points and so many good resources included here. Thank you both so much for the work that you do for Philadelphia children and families and for teaching us more about sleep-related deaths and how common they are in pediatrics. I think you've given us all a lot to take home today. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. It's a pleasure talking. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat. 